0: All right, let's open up our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12 through 13. Those of you that are visiting with us for the first time, that's a shocker, isn't it? Revelation 12 through 13. There's a New Testament scholar. His name is Dennis Johnson. He says something very interesting. He says the question why can precipitate almost an endless chain of explanations. For instance, well, why did he die? Well, his brainwave activity ceased. Well, why did his brainwave activity cease? Well, his brain no longer received the oxygen it needed. Well, why did his brain no longer receive the oxygen that he needed? Well, his heart stopped beating. Well, why did his heart stop beating? Well, a bullet passed through it. Okay, well, why did a bullet pass through it? It was propelled toward him at a high speed. Well, why was it propelled toward him at a high speed? A pistol hammer ignited gunpowder, which sent the bullet at a high speed. Well, why did this happen? Because the enemy had pulled the pistol's trigger. Well, why did the enemy pull the pistol's trigger? Well, the enemy carried a grudge. Well, why did the enemy carry a grudge? Because the victim had stabbed the enemy's brother. Well, why did the victim stab the enemy's brother? The brother owed the victim money. Why? A gambling debt. And he goes on to say, quote, who knows how many reasons could be traced then from there on back. Endless after endless after endless explanations. What's happening here in 12 and 13 is an inside look. It's a pull back the curtain look into the oldest, rawest, most savage conflict in all the ages. The most central and core conflict that rages behind the curtains of human history. And we're getting an inside look. We're getting a pull-back-the-curtain look at this core, ravaging, raging conflict. We know we are because in... Well, we know we are in 1119. We're just going to back up a little bit. Look at 1119. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within His temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, earthquake and heavy hail. We know we're on an elevator down into the lower level explanations of reality because of this passage. Because this particular passage in 19, which is leading into 12, 19 is going to lead us into 12. In 19, we're then going to see two signs in heaven. But remember what's happening in 19. We are now in a magnification of the throne room of God. In 19, getting a picture of the inner workings of the throne, it marks that we're moving into new levels of divine revelation. We're moving beyond the surface, higher levels of explaining human history, into the wise, into the lower levels, into the basement, bottom line realities of what's going on in the world. That's what's taking place. Because 19, 11, 19 is a magnification of Revelation 4. And you remember what Revelation 4 was like. Remember in Revelation 4, we saw the one who sits on the throne. Two great visions that govern this whole book. Two great visions that lead to the content of the book. First one, the Son of Man. Seven letters as a result. Second one, the central reality of the universe. The one who sits on the throne. And then we get this description of the creatures that guard and circle the throne. And there's this, this concentric reality of the heavenly host in the heavenly high courtroom. But the one that sits on the throne is the center of all reality. He's the center of the universe. The central interpretation of everything that's true and everything that's right. If, if we miss that God is at the center on his throne in the center of the universe, you have a slated, you have a... Slighted worldview. We're spiritually blind if we don't see that. That's the point. So we move into the central reality. Paul would have put this picture in a proposition. If Paul was to see what John saw, if he propositionally described it, he would have done it like he did in Revelation. I mean in uh, Romans 11, he would have said, "For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever and ever." Revelation chapter 4, the one who sits on the throne. And remember that throne was sitting. And the word described as sitting was actually pinning. And the word being pinned was the throne pinning heaven and earth. Again, heaven and earth is pinned under the throne of God himself. That's the centerpiece of reality. So we moved into this reality in 19. And it's there that we get these... Lower level explanations of questions like why is the church persecuted? We get lower level explanations to why is the church a mixture of truth and why is it a mixture of false teaching? How can a church be a combination of preserving sound doctrine and then rampant heresies in the same body or in local bodies of the same denomination? Or in Christian denominations proclaiming to follow Christ such different rampant mixtures of truth and error. How can that be? How can there be such a thing as purity and impurity mixed into the body of Christ? How can there be courage in the body of Christ and compromise in the body of Christ? How can there be this mixture? Why is this? Why are there seven letters to seven different churches which represent all the churches throughout all the ages? Why are there seven letters to seven different churches And they all have varying degrees of destructive doctrines and destructive living in their churches. Why and how can that be? Why do wars and famine and violence and brutality and evil and misery rage when the Prince of Peace is on his throne? And when he sat on his throne, he brought in his kingdom. How can it be? Why is this happening? Lower levels of explanation. What lies behind the hostility of human enemies and human conflict? What lies behind destructive societal structures and destructive system of thought? What lies behind destructive religions and destructive commerce and destructive economies and destructive political institutions and destructive philosophies? What lies behind all of these? The scholar goes on to say in his commentary in Revelation, he says, Is there a cause of this cosmic conflict that lies behind the proximate causes? We all come in contact, mostly in our life, with the proximate causes. The secondary causes of life. The realities of human sin and evil. And the realities of situations and circumstances. And the realities of tsunamis. The realities of all these things. And they live on the very cusp of our existence. And when we get to 12, and we get to 13, we go into the deeper explanations and whys behind them. And we have very graphic pictures. Is there a core conflict behind and driving the drama of human history? That's the question of 12 and 13. And the answer is yes. Let's stand and see it. We're going to look at chapter 12. And we'll touch on one verse or two verses in 13. We'll spend a couple weeks here, and I'll explain why in a second. Twelve. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now she was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten hordes, horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. He gave birth to a male child, the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has been placed where a place has been prepared by God and which she has to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. Now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. Why? Because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman... Who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nursed for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help out the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, on those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the, sh- of the sea. Now look at 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, ten horns, seven heads, ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Then go to 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, one coming out of the sea, one coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated. Everyone understands that passage, right? We can just move on into clear application. Are you ready? Do you see what you put your pastor through each week? I just want you to know that. You all remember, pick this book. Those of you that are joining us in the spirit of election season, we had given, or I had given, a poll. We could either hear 1 John for the next year or hear Revelation. And I think there was just a couple minority votes towards 1 John, so here we are. We're at the heart of the book, the heart of the book, which is the heart of the conflict. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we definitely acknowledge our need to hear from you. We acknowledge our need, Lord, to have you help us to see what's going on in this passage, to help us hear what's going on in this passage. But Lord, more than anything, it's, it's not about distantly seeing and distantly hearing This passage needs to come alive in our lives. As it was said of of Edwards, all his application was doctrine and all his doctrine was application. So, O Lord, may your doctrine live and move and have life in us. I pray, Lord, that you'd give help to me to speak it. You'd give help for all of us to hear it. And again, that you would give us eyes to see and you would give us a heart to savor the truths and the realities of you in this passage. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to take a test and it's a self-administered test. No one's going to grade you. In fact, you will grade yourself. And just a little words of advice to those of you that are taking this test and you don't do too well. If you fail this test, don't tell anybody. All right. Don't tell anybody. We're going to look at a test on spiritual warfare 101. Here's your exam. True and false. You answer true or you answer false. Maybe in your head you want to give an answer or two. But again, if you don't do well, keep it to yourself. Question number one. Frank Peretti is a highly esteemed biblical theologian who has written the definitive works on spiritual warfare. True or false? The name, question number two, the name of the demon that has territorial responsibility for Waco is Bear Zabubba. <laughs> question number three, spiritual warfare regularly involves binding, rebuking, and even casting out the demons of pride, lust, anger, self-righteousness, depression, bondage, or fear, to name a few. Now I'm getting a little more serious, right? Question number four. I just lost the seriousness. The mark of the beast involves a futuristic microchip is implanted on your forehead or the back of your hand containing a GPS system, which stands for Global Positioning System, in order to mark your whereabouts wherever you are and to qualify you to buy food and other necessary commodities to get on in life. Question number five. Spiritual warfare is not, key word, not primarily about exercising, one, repentance from sinful thinking, desiring, and acting. Two, faith in the beauty and bounty of Jesus. Three, new obedience arising out of a heart gripped by the grace of God and driven by the grace of God. Spiritual warfare is primarily not about those things. True or false? False. If you answer true to any of these above questions, you have failed Spiritual Warfare 101. And remember, keep it to yourself, okay? The big idea of 12 through 13 is Spiritual Warfare 101, and it's taking a look at two great signs. Now, we've moved into the central throne room of God, and we've moved into, those, into that, that reality or the inner sanctum part of the throne room, And we know that we're now getting a deeper, lower level explanations of reality. And we're getting them in two signs. I mean, look at verse 1 of 12. And a great sign appeared. Then drop down to verse 3. Another great sign appeared. Now remember, when we're looking at Revelation, Revelation's communicating truth. It's communicating propositions. It's communicating doctrine. But it's doing it through the medium of pictures, through the medium of signs, through the medium of visions. If you go to Paul or if you go to the, the epistles or the letters, truth's being communicated too, right? Doctrine's being communicated true, but the medium or the bucket that's carrying the water of truth is argument and logic and system and propositions, okay? If you go to, let's say, poetry or you go to the Psalms or you go to wisdom literature, the water of meanings being carried in the bucket of, of lots of parallelism and metaphor, poetry... If you're in history, in narratives, the Gospels, the first, really much of the Old Testament, truth is being carried through the bucket of story, plot, character, right? Scene. Well, here, when you get to apocalyptic, you're just off the charts. The medium is pictures. The medium is signs. So here we go. Our plan is to start looking at the crucial elements of Spiritual Warfare 101. Now, again, we're, we're moving into a topic that is very hot topic today in the church. There is so much literature on spiritual warfare. Just, just to humor your pastor, go to a local bookstore this week and go to the spiritual warfare section and just look at the number of books out there on the spiritual warfare section. Then just do me a favor. Go over to the section on the doctrine of God and count how many books are the doctrine of God. Or or find a book on the atonement and see how many books are on the atonement. Just do that slight comparison for me. Now, this is not to say that spiritual warfare is not important. It's not at all. In other words, a plethora of books on spiritual warfare could be a good sign. It could be a sign that we're pursuing to understand these realities. It could be a sign of health or it could be a sign of not being healthy. We have so many books because we don't know what in the world we're talking about. Right. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks because in chapter 12 and 13 and then on to 17, we're looking at the the central conflict of all human drama. And we're just going to pull out. We're going to pull out crucial elements that define what spiritual warfare is. We're going to look at one today. We might tackle two next week and we'll see how far we go. But I do know this. For most of us, myself included, it's not going to be what we think. It's not going to be mostly what we've grown up hearing and understanding in the church today. Okay? So I'll dangle that carrot out before us. Let's look at the first one. Spiritual warfare. Even as I say it, I I try to say it with a straight face because you're not going to take me seriously, but spiritual warfare is good news. And I know it's like saying, it's so delusional, isn't it? Putting spiritual warfare and good news together in one sentence is like saying running a marathon is easy. It's like saying Hitler was a humanitarian. It just doesn't mix, does it? But let's let's do this. I'd like us to kind of come together and pretend that we're back at the creation of the world and we're hiding in the bushes. And all we're doing is watching what takes place. And then we're going to pull back out and we're going to describe what took place in theological terms and prove that spiritual warfare is good news. Okay? All right, if you were there in the bushes, this is what we would see. We would see the lowest creature in God's creation, the serpent, slithering onto holy ground. And as this lowest creature in God's creation slithers into holy ground, I want you to, we're looking around, and first of all, we can't believe things are as green as they are. And we can't believe things are as fruitful as they are. And we can't believe that that little mosquito buzzing doesn't bite me. And we can't believe that insects actually look beautiful and colorful. We cannot believe how rich and moist and dark the soil is, how blue and bright the sky is. We can't imagine the way things are there. And then we see this snake slithering in as the snake slithers in onto heaven on earth, into holy ground, that in his path and in his wake, the green, there's a scorched earth, The grass dies. The insects die. The ground is scorched. And as this slithering serpent comes in onto holy ground, he doesn't take his sandals off to honor the high holy one who sits on his throne and has joined heaven and earth in this place. And he doesn't take off his sandals because he's an invader. He's an enemy of the kingdom of God. As ugly as this side is, it gets worse. Moses sarcastically, when describing the snake in Genesis 3.1, he says, here is the lowest creature in all of creation, acting like it's higher than God. And then the scene gets worse because there's one placed in the garden who's meant to guard the way, into heaven on earth. There's one there in the garden who's meant to be a guardian of holiness. a one in there that's meant to mirror what the cherub and the seraphim do behind the throne room of God. How they circle like a praetorium guard and they will not allow any uncleanliness, any unholiness to come in and stain and scorch holy realities. And this one that's there, we're looking at him and we see the serpent slithering, and we see the scorched earth coming in, green, bright, light, beauty, bounty, death, scorched, black, ground behind him. And we're saying, Well what get up? Do something. And he just sits there, falling asleep at his post. Obviously not physically, but spiritually he's asleep at his post. Every slithering inch into the garden uncleanliness is staining it, unholiness is staining it. And like a horror flick, Adam stands and watches. Remember those old horror flicks when the hideous creature is in the house and then he's in the room and then he's in the darkness in the closet and then in walks the cool star of the movie and he walks into the house or she walks into the house, into the room and puts her or his back to the dark closet and everyone in the theater saying turn around! Everyone's screaming, turn around you fool! Turn around! You know we're all just digging in girls are going like this or my wife's going like this. You know, It's just that kind of reality. Everyone's yelling turn around, turn around Adam never turns around never turns around he allows the creature to come in and instead of doing what he's supposed to do, he never turns around He lets the enemy in to kill and destroy. Numbers 3 gives us a great glimpse of what Adam was supposed to do. God's listing the duties of the Levite priests in number th- Numbers 3. He lists the duty or the key action word. And it's a very aggressive word. It's called guard or keep. Watch over. Guard. Guard. It's used 11 times in one chapter to describe what the Levites were supposed to do. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to guard, keep the holy things of God. Particularly, they were supposed to keep unholiness or uncleanliness from slithering in and staining the tabernacle, the furnishings in the temple, and the holy priesthood of the the Aaronic priests. Okay? God gave him this charge. He said, if any outsider comes near, put him to death. If your brother or sister comes near, put them to death. Why? Why does God seem so harsh? Because God joined heaven to earth in Israel's history. And when He did, things became holy down here. And the Levite priests were to guard the kingdom of God from unholiness. Adam was placed in the central point of the kingdom of God and he was to destroy any invader that came in. And he didn't. Now, their eyes were opened in the blink of an eye, wasn't it? I mean, it just happened just like that. You read the text and all of a sudden, as quick as you could blink, they transferred kingdoms. It's unbelievable, and we know they transferred kingdoms because we start seeing that the way they see themselves, the way they're seeing God, the way they see each other, the way they see the world's completely devoid of God now. And we get these picturesque words like shame, and and their eyes were opened, and they they see they're naked, and they they can't understand the guilt that they're feeling, and all of a sudden the world's turned upside down forever. And in fact, what happens is a dark madness moved into their minds. All of a sudden, instead of thinking according to God and His Word and and interpreting reality according to the voice of the Lord, they're now thinking and perceiving and interpreting all of reality in in light of their own fallen, darkened minds, in light of the opinions of others and a slithering serpent. But not only is madness moved into their mind, but hostility has burrowed itself deep into their heart. There's a hostility in their heart towards God now. They can't even comprehend it. It's this deep, deep distrust, this rebellion and resistance, this refusal to trust in the goodness of God deeply embedded into their heart. And they start realizing there are now rampant cravings, dominating desires and twisted and distorted desires that push and pull their affections and their loves, pulling them away from God and towards creatures. And lies. But not only that, they've seen that their mind has been made mad. Their hearts have been made hostile to God. And now their hands have become hard. And instead of their hands going forward in blessing and productivity to the glory of God, their hands now go forward in thorns and fruitless behavior and actions. And so is the world. And you and I were there and we see it and we smell it and we taste it and it's hideous. And now God's coming. I want you to turn to Genesis three. We're going to look at God coming and I want you to ignore your translation. It's not an accurate translation. I'm going to give you a literal translation Genesis 3, 8, and 9. God's coming, and He's not coming because He wants to go for a walk in the garden in the cool of the day, because it's a nice day. God's coming, and it's not because He wants to chat and talk small with Adam and Eve about all the wonders that He's made. How is God coming? Here's a literal translation. Chapter 3, 8, and 9. And they heard the roar or the thunder of the Lord... God, flashing back and forth in the garden. Where's that picture? We just got done with that picture in 11.19 and in Revelation 4. Whenever God shows up, there's peals of thunder and there's flashing of lightning. And it's not in the cool of the day, but it's in the storm, the whirlwind of the day. What's happening here is that God is coming to judge His creatures. He's coming to judge his servant. And the wrath and curse of God is about ready to be let loose. Now, it should have all ended here, right? It should have all ended here. The serpent and Adam and Eve should have been judged by the wrath and curse of God. Holiness should have been poured out on unholiness. It should have ended there. The game should have been over. And that's where we get to the good news, because spiritual warfare means you're not on the same team as the serpent anymore. Spiritual warfare means you're not on the same team as the serpent anymore. Something's happened when God does come and he does come in judgment and he does come as the king to prosecute. And he does come to lay out the curses of the covenant that they've broken. He does come, and when He comes, it is flashing lightning, it is thunder, and no wonder they're hiding. We would hide too. In fact, we're trembling in the bushes as He comes. And then when He comes up, He pronounces His curses, and what's the first curse He says? If you look at it in 3.15, again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. God breaks up the dark bond between the serpent and Adam and Eve. He puts hostility where there was friendship. You have, before this point, a mad mind, a hostile heart, and hard hands. You have Adam and Eve now on the same team as the serpent, now friends with the serpent. There's no spiritual warfare, it's peaceful. They're all on the same team. And God comes in and he says, no more peace. Hostility. Enmity. Between the serpent and you. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is incredible news. And what's happened now is that we have... Well, want us to look at this. Don't miss how God breaks it up. Let's look at the second part. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between her offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that the basis of the good news, the reason why there's going to be hostility, why will there be enmity and hostility? Why will the this dynamic team be broken up? Why will it be destroyed? Why will there be a new alliance and a new bond and a new covenant that breaks the old one between the serpent and humanity? Because there will be a second Adam and there will be a better Adam and he will do what The first one didn't. He will stomp on the head of the snake. Now, don't miss this. Sometimes we read this and it says he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. We tend to think that the snake is lashing out at the foot of the Messiah, at the foot of the male child, as we see in Revelation 12, and he gets him. You know, he gets those teeth in on him while his foot's coming down, and he bruises his heel. That's not the picture here. The picture here of a bruised heel is what happens when he stomps so hard, he drives it through the head into the ground, and the ground bruises his heel because he stepped on him so hard and crushed the serpent. That's the picture here. So the one that does come, the better Adam, the second Adam, he does what the first one didn't. And that is he guards the way into heaven on the new earth and the new heavens. And he destroys the invader. Okay, now that's the basis. And I want us to see that this is good news. And the reason why I want us to see this is this. Your struggle against the world, your flesh and the devil is good news. There's lots of teaching today about spiritual warfare and about spiritual victory that tries to eliminate the struggle as a sign or a mark of victory. In other words, a lot of notions today, contemporary notions of victory is when there's no struggle, when there's this deliverance in which there's no more struggle, no more fight, no more enduring, no more getting back up. As if you can get higher and move beyond it. And what this passage is telling us, and what the whole of Scripture is telling us, that no, the good news of spiritual warfare is that there is a fight. And there is a war now. And there is a struggle. And there is endurance. And there is resistance. And when you do fall down, you do get back up again. In fact, that's the the greatest sign of the victory. The greatest sign that there's good news is now that there's a struggle. And the mark of being a Christian is that you're now struggling and fighting and resisting the sin that pulls in you and the dragon's deceitful tactics and the world that seeks to seduce you, you're now at war for the first time when you become a Christian. You're no longer on the same team. Do you see how good news this is? This is incredible good news. God, by his grace, because he crushed his son, he breaks the alliance. And now forms a new one with you. And that new one is not based on your obedience like it was with Adam. It's based solely on the work of his son so that you get grace. So that means you're brought in by grace because of the crushing of a son And you stay in by grace because the crushing of the sun was enough. And you get to the new heavens and the new earth like we got just a little glimpse of in Genesis 3. Because of the cross and because of the crown of the sun. Incredible good news. Now, I just want to prove to you in two minutes, go back to our text. Do you see we're just getting into our text? That's what's taking place in Revelation 12. What Revelation 12 is doing is it's giving you a view of the, the core conflict of the ages from a perspective on earth. That's what happens in 1 through 5. Then it, it transports you to a heavenly commentary of the same conflict. You're getting it from a different angle. The first angle, 1 through 5, is you're getting the angle on earth. This core conflict that rages behind human history. Then... in Seven are actually six to the end, six to the end of this chapter. You're now in a heavenly commentary looking at the same thing. So what we need to see is that the woman here in the first sign and then the second sign is the great red dragon. Well, the great red dragon, I think, is easy for us to see who it is. Even explicitly, it's said in verse nine. And the great dragon was thrown down. Here he is, the ancient serpent. How ancient? The one, if we've read our Bible in the beginning, is way back in... Genesis 3, okay? So the great red dragon here is the great ancient serpent, Satan, the devil. Now, who is this woman? Clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, 12 stars in her crown. Well, that picture, remember when we were reading these signs and these pictures, the first place we go is not to our imagination and not to the newspaper. The first place we go is to the Old Testament. And what's interesting, in Joseph's dream... Remember Joseph? And when he had his dream, remember that weird dream that there was the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him? Now, what's significant about that dream is, is that Israel just got named in 12 sons. Jacob's 12 sons have just been named in the text. And immediately Joseph has this dream. And so when he has this dream, he has a dream of the woman or actually the son And the sun ends up being the father Jacob and the moon ends up being mother Rachel and the 11 stars, Joseph's brother, because Joseph's the 12th bowing down to him. And what we get a picture here using those pictures is this is the people of God. This is the people of God in the Old Testament. This is the people of God called Israel. So the first the first picture of the woman is the people of God. And the first picture is mother Israel. But that's not the most important picture we get here. As we move on in the text, we see that the second most important thing or the the ultimate reality of this mother being the people of God is the mother of the Messiah. So let's keep reading. Two, she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. So what we have here, two great signs. We see this woman and we see this woman as the mother Israel. Borrowing the image of Joseph's dream, describing Israel, Jacob, Rachel, the eleven sons, Joseph being the twelve. Borrowing that picture, telling us this is the people of God, the church. Then we move and say, but most importantly about the people of God, not just the mother of Israel, but mother of the Messiah. Okay, And then the next combatant is the great red dragon. And what we're going to do is what we'll spend for the next uh, probably two weeks is continually looking at the reality of spiritual warfare 101. So right now, let's end by doing this. What does God want 12 through 13 to do to you? When we look at this passage and we're saying, okay, these are great pictures and this is great stuff. And and again, you don't have to hold your interest too much because everyone's kind of interested in understanding what it means. Everyone wants to know what the the red dragon and the beast that stands and comes out of the sea. And then the the second beast comes out of the land. And and we're all interested in the sign of 666, put on foreheads. What does all this stuff mean? They're all going to be pictures of spiritual warfare. And we're going to start pulling out some sense of them. But they're all meant to do something to you. Remember, the Bible is written not just to make us good Bible trivia people. The Bible is written to actually create the realities on the page in you. Do something to us. So what's it supposed to do? Look at verse 10b of 13. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So in Revelation 1310 b we are given its own application of what's supposed to happen as you read these stories and as you read these pictures and as they come alive literally in your life. You are strengthened in your faith and you end up standing and enduring amidst lots of hostility and having hostility with the world and with the dragon's deceits and with your own sin pulling within you is good news. Okay? All right. Martin Niemoller in 1934 was summoned by Adolf Hitler to his Berlin office. When Pastor Niemoller walked into the office, Hitler immediately started berating him for not supporting his plans and his programs. Again, very, very uh, reminiscent of Paul Schneider, except this Paul Schneider was even earlier. So, Nia Moeller explained that the reason why he wasn't is that he was concerned for not only the welfare of the church in Germany, but he was concerned for the people of Germany. And Hitler snapped back, quote, you confine yourself to the church. I'll take care of the people of Germany. And Nia Moeller replied, you said that I will take care of the German people. But we too, as Christians and churchmen, have a responsibility toward the German people. And that responsibility was entrusted by God. And neither you nor anyone else in the world has the power to take it away from me. (laughs) And Hitler is silent. That night, his home is raided by the Gestapo. A couple days later, his church is bombed. Now he's in a holding cell awaiting trial. To his own admission, he said... He was overcome with terror and loneliness. This is the stuff he was thinking. What will become of me? What will become of my family? What will become of the church? What tortures await all of them? Will they torture my family? I can't bear the thought of that. Those are what was running around in his head. And his blood turned like ice in his veins. And if the ground could have swallowed him up, he would have gone willingly. He was saying he couldn't go on. He couldn't trust the Lord. He couldn't endure. The guard came in and he was as silent as a stone. Leads him through a tunnel and up the last flight of stairs. As he's going up the last flight of stairs, he hears a whisper in his ear. He's wondering, where is that coming from? And he realizes it's the guard that's actually taking him into the trial. And he's quoting Proverbs 18:10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run to it and are safe. And Nehemiah said, Those words melted the ice in my veins, and I could trust the Lord. And not only trust the Lord, but he endured weeks and months in a concentration camp. Now, my friends, the call of spiritual warfare is for faith and endurance. Because spiritual warfare is good news. The better Adam, the better Adam has stomped on the head of the serpent. And has stomped on the head of your sin. And so you can trust Him now. And you can endure. Amen.